Again, it's good to have you here for our time of Bible study this morning. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 7, and then also we are dealing with paragraph 2 and 3 of the Confession of Faith this morning. We are studying the chapter 13 of the Confession dealing with of sanctification, and this morning we're dealing with the thought of sanctification detailed, life in Christ Jesus. Sanctification detailed, life in in Christ Jesus. There's really a couple of thoughts we want to consider this morning before we begin. First thought is the imperfection of our present sanctification. Our present sanctification, although it reaches to the entirety of man, uh, what the Bible refers to as the fullness of man in his being, uh, his sanctification at this point is still incomplete and imperfect. It is a quote-unquote, work in progress. Uh, One of the verses that makes mention of sanctification and the process as it's continuing, you don't have to turn there this morning, but it's uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, when Paul, during the final exhortations to the first epistle of Thessalonians, says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless, unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is this imperfection and incompleteness. Secondly, there is the continuous progress of our sanctification. So if it's incomplete and imperfect, we know that there's also progress that's taking place. Uh, We dealt with this last week, but sanctification is really a war against the flesh. It's a war against our old nature. And we do need to realize that even the quote-unquote best of God's people uh, are going to struggle at times with sin in their life. Uh, Biblical characters we know that struggle with sins, uh, this three right off the top, the three most obvious, David, Peter, and Abraham. Uh, These are heroes of the faith to us, yet these men struggled deeply with sin. So sanctification is a continuous progress. Uh, The Spirit uh, is what works in us, those who are truly believers. Now, it's often been said that sanctification is all of God and man has nothing to do with it. That's not biblically accurate. We do know that the Spirit, God uses the means of the Spirit, but we participate in our sanctification. Uh, You might recall what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.14. He says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That pressing towards the mark was his own sanctification. He's participating in the sanctification process. So paragraph two in the confession deals with the remaining struggle with sin or this imperfection of our present sanctification. There is no more classic passage in all of Scripture about the war of the new nature and the old nature than what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. Now, we could start at the beginning of Romans 7 and begin there and read through the entire chapter, but I want to focus primarily on verses 13 through 25, dealing with this imperfection that even Paul recognizes, but he also makes mention of this continuing progress, okay? So it's not stagnant. He's making progress in grace, and we'll talk a little bit about both of those this morning. So Romans 7 verse 13, Paul writes these words, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. 
But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law was spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members. Now notice this word, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So Paul makes mention of the words warring. So this sanctification process is a war between the old man and the new man. Paragraph 2 of the confession reads this way, This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abides still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So it is really important that when we deal with sanctification that we guard against the error that it's possible to become sinless in this life. That is a grave error to believe that we can possibly read, reach sinless perfection. Uh, there are some who believe that. They believe that sanctification is completed in this life, and biblically speaking, there is nowhere that you could prove that. Paul, to his, to his very day of death, understood what it was to war this war against the flesh and the spirit. So there are passages that give a suggestion that this might be a complete. We want to look at a couple of these this morning. Look at 1 John 4, 17. These are some of the verses that people use to try to declare that this sanctification um, is completed in this life. Now, in the context of what's, what's being spoken about here, we see that that is not true. Uh, 1 John 4, verse 17 says... Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Well, the interpretation falsely is, is because John makes the statement, because as he is, so are we in this world. That means that we're perfectly sanctified, but that is not the context of what John was writing about. That's one of the verses that's used to argue that sanctification is complete uh, in this life, and we know that it is not. Let me give you a couple more. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Again, these are verses that are used to suggest that sanctification is complete. Now, if sanctification is complete, 
If it could be, then that means you would no longer have a remaining struggle with sin. Okay? If you're totally sanctified, then you'll never struggle with sin. My guess is everyone here today still struggles with sin. Um, I, I've met people that claim they don't, and quite honestly, that frightens me. It's, I'm, I'm truly afraid of a person that says, I do not struggle with sin anymore. Um, it, it should frighten you. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world, present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Now, of course, Paul, writing that passage, talks about the grace of God does a couple of things. It brings salvation, but it also teaches us. Okay? It teaches us that we're denied, we are to deny ungodliness. That's part of sanctification. Uh, the Spirit doesn't deny ungodliness for you. Everybody understand that? You, the Spirit, you don't just run into ungodly situations and say, the Spirit will take this away from me. You are to deny it. That's your present participation in your sanctification. You are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We're to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, the person who believes they don't struggle with sin, what are they saying? They're saying, I deny all ungodliness. I deny all worldly lust. I live soberly always. I live righteously always. And I live godly always in this present world. Have any of you ever met anyone like that? I sure haven't. I've never even come close. I've never even been around someone who's even close. But that's what we're supposed to be doing. But that's by the grace of God and the presence of the Spirit that helps us live that way. So these are verses that people have used to believe it's possible for a believer not to sin in this life. Uh, there is a doctrine for this. It's called the doctrine of perfectionism. Imagine being able to read, to be able to reach perfectionism in this life. Yet we know, biblically speaking, that's impossible. So we've got to guard against the error. Now, let's look at the passages that contradict just those two examples. The first one is obviously the one we read as we began, which is Romans 7 uh, and verses 13 through 25. Uh, Paul is talking about the believer's battle with his remaining sin. Romans 7 is not an unbeliever's chapter. This is not the struggle for salvation. This is the struggle of a person who's already saved, a person who is a believer. You can't approach Romans 7 and say this is the struggle of the unbeliever. Okay, because here's the truth. The unbeliever, spiritually speaking, doesn't want to do right. Spiritually speaking. Now, they might have some morals. They may have some values. But they do not want to do spiritual good because they're not believers. Remember, we've learned over the months that the only reason we want to do anything good is because we have that new nature. Our goodness, our righteousness is as filthy rags always. So we only do spiritual good as if we are in, as we are in Christ. So Paul in Romans 7 is writing as a believer, not to unbelievers, to say, hey, if you really want to be in Christ Jesus, if you really want a life in Christ Jesus, struggle against your sin. The unbelieving world has no idea what that means. The unbeliever fulfills the lust of the flesh when they want, how they want, and for however long they want. There's not conviction. 
They just do what they want. They do because it feels good. Yet, what is, what is, what's keeping Paul in Romans 7, pardon the expression, what's keeping Paul on the rails? It's verse 22 of Romans 7. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Paul actually delighted in God's law. The unbeliever hates God's law because the law is a schoolmaster that teaches him what he really is, a sinner, right? That's, that's the guardrail for Paul. You take that along with Romans 8, 7. Again, Romans 8, 7 the whole chapter of Romans 8 is not about the unbeliever struggle. It's about the believer struggle. Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The carnal mind is the unbelieving mind. It is what? Enmity. It's an opponent. It's the war. That's what Paul's talking about. My old carnal mind is battling against the new inward man, the new spirit of Christ. It's a battle. It's a struggle. So this conflict is part of the sanctifying process. This is also taught in Galatians 5. And some of these are the footnoted uh, verses that are in the paragraph. Galatians 5.17, Paul again writing about this, this conflict he says, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. But if ye be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. He goes down and he gives a list of the works of the flesh. Okay, we would agree every one of those works of the flesh are sin. Like, I've, I've never met a believer that says adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lascivious, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, that they're not sin. They're sin because that's the idea of the, the spiritual mind. Okay, the world says get as much of these things as you can. All you have to do is slip on the television and you will see that's the very thing that people are entertained by. The highest rated programs in television right now, and again, this is not a knock against TV, don't take me that way, is in those areas. The highest rated program, they focus around those particular sins. Why? Because the unbelieving world loves that. But what Paul is saying is the law of God is contrary to that, which means my mind no longer loves those things. And part of the sanctifying process is my participation in denying that ungodliness and saying that's ungodly. I'm turning away from it. That's the idea here that Paul is talking about. So there is this conflict. Uh, again, John writes in 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse number 8, he actually deals with this about uh, a man that says he has no sin. 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 8. If we say, Paul is not, or John here is not talking about unbelievers. He's saying, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So a believer who claims to be a believer says, I don't have sin. What does John say? If you say you have no sin, you make God a liar and his word is not in us. So a person that says they're sinless in this life is actually not in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a harsh statement to some because I'm thinking about people I've met who actually said, I don't struggle with sin anymore. So what were they really saying? His word's not in them. The one I'm thinking about was a pastor. How can he be a pastor and not be in, and not have, not be in Christ Jesus? There's, it's impossible for you to be in this life and not have a struggle with sin. Now, that would be very depressing if we had, that's all we had. But even Jesus himself taught his disciples in Matthew 6, 12 to daily ask for forgiveness. Part of the Lord's prayer is to ask daily for forgiveness. If I don't have a struggle with sin, then why does God tell me I need to daily forgive, be forgiven? Because I still have a struggle with sin. So those who believe they can attain perfection in this life are either, they're either deceived or they redefine what sin actually is. I think there's a big emphasis on the second half of that. I think to be deceived is a redefining of sin. If I take what God says is sin and I start to redefine it, I've been deceived. God's word is very clear on what sin is, what its characteristics are, what it looks like, how it attacks, how it operates, the only way I can say I'm sinless is to redefine what sin is. It's watering down things. It's the most popular church today is they water down sin. Let's redefine sin in order to make people feel as if they have a little bit of liberty. What a buzzword liberty is. Everybody wants liberty and freedom. I want my liberty. I want my freedom. Here's what Paul said. I delight in the law of God. Paul said, the greatest liberty I have is in the law of God. The greatest freedom I have is in the law of God. So when the world's screaming for liberty and freedom, we have no greater liberty, no greater freedom than what we have in Christ Jesus. It's, 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 you, 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 you empathize with Paul's struggle because what Paul says in Romans 7 is your daily life if you're truly in Christ Jesus. The things you know you're not supposed to do, you keep doing them. And the things you're supposed to do, you don't do them. Yet, there's supposed to be progress. Which is what paragraph 3 deals with. So sin, according to the Bible, includes willful acts, unintentional acts, motives, desires, and thoughts. Someone might say, is it still sin if I... If I did it unintentionally, in the eyes of God, yes. Sin is sin, even if it's done unintentionally. The church has tried to redefine sin as only things you do willfully. Why is unintentional sin still a sin? Because of original sin when Adam fell in the garden. Remember, even if you never commit a sin personally in your life, you would still be guilty before God because of Adam's fall. Some churches don't teach that. They teach, I'm not a part of original sin. What blows people's mind away, some of you will know this name, others may not. He's one of the, he's one of the most revered evangelists of old, was Charles Finney. 
Do you realize he did not believe in original sin? He didn't believe in it. A lot of our bad habits in churches came from the ministry of Finney. Yet he's revered by many. Now again, doesn't mean he didn't have to say some good things. But where, am I, where do I really stand on the spectrum of sin if I say I, would, I am not guilty of original sin? To me, it changes the whole doctrine of Scripture. That's a redefinition of sin. So Paul says there's this struggle. Paragraph 3 now deals with the second part we dealt with, which is the continuous progress of our sanctification. Yes, we struggle. Yes, it's imperfect. Yes, it's incomplete. But there should be progress. Notice what paragraph 3 of the confession says. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word hath prescribed them. Now notice, I like what the confession writers used in the last phrase. Pressing, or the next to last, pressing after a heavenly life. That's what Paul was talking about in Philippians. I press towards the mark of the high calling for the prize in Christ Jesus. That's progress. Pressing forward. I press toward the mark. Now there's Romans 7.23, Romans 6.14, Ephesians 4.15 and 16, 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 2 Corinthians 7.1 are the footnoted verses for that particular paragraph. We're going to deal with most of those. So let me give you three truths based upon this, this progress in grace. Number one, when Paul or any other writers uses the term holiness, believers are to exert themselves towards that holiness. In other words, you are not holy just because you're in Christ. Now, sanctified positionally, we dealt with that the very first week. Yes, you're in Christ Jesus. But holiness does not just come as a result of you just sitting there doing nothing. Okay? One, of the, one of the great uh, false accusations against Reformed theology and Reformed Baptist theology specifically is that, well, this means you don't have to do anything. You just kind of sit there like a bump on a log. That shows you someone who doesn't understand Reformed theology at all. It's the exact opposite of that. Actually, it teaches you, which is Reformed theology, is biblical theology, by the way. What that teaches you is that we are to exert ourselves towards that holiness, which means I'm going to have to make decisions based upon what the law of God tells me to do. Well, I don't like the idea of a law governing me. Well, that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? A lawless world hates law. Now, not every law that the world created is good. Some laws are just plain bad. But you know the law of God is always good? There's no part of God's law that we look at and we say, you know what, what was God thinking when he gave us this law? Now, we know there are various types of law. There's the ceremonial law. There's the moral law. Remember the ceremonial law? That's been done away with in many senses. There are people, churches today, they're trying to live by the ceremonial law. And God says, what are you living by that for? They're worried about the ceremony, but they've thrown the moral law right out the window. Moral law is still in effect. So this 
this exerting ourselves towards holiness, this is part of what's called progressive sanctification. It doesn't just happen while we're passive. What does that do as we exert ourselves towards holiness? Well, it guards us against the common Christian uh, philosophy and the mantra. And probably one of the worst quotes of bad theology in Christianity today is let go and let God. <laughs> That's not scriptural. That doesn't, de- that doesn't deny God's sovereignty in any way. But when you look at it and you say, listen, I don't have to do anything. I just let go and let God do it all. Sanctification, there's a responsibility on your part. That progress that's taking place, that's you. If there was no progress required on our part or there was no participation, why was Paul in Romans 7 so bothered by the reality that instead of keep going forward, he kept taking steps backwards? And he he didn't say, God, your sanctification process is failing. What does he keep saying? I, I, I. I'm the one not doing the things I want to do. I'm the one that's doing the things I don't, and I'm not doing the things that I should. So this error that let go, let God, in its true theology, basically says in order for God to work, we just got to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do his work without any of our effort. You know what that would do? That would also affect our evangelism, which would say, because the Spirit is the one that converts the soul, we don't have to do anything. That's not scriptural. We're called to give the gospel. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to talk about the gospel. We're told to point people to Christ. Our evangelism is not, sorry, I got to get out of the way and let God do his thing. Now, that doesn't deny that the Holy Spirit's the one that does the conversion of the soul. The entire Trinity is involved in the conversion of a soul. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. That's another one of those false accusations made against us. I hope you guys realize that that you don't care about any evangelism. If you don't care about evangelism today, you need to check your theology at the door because you should care about evangelism. Now, it may not look the same for all of us. Not every one of us is going to stand behind a pulpit and preach a message, but we're evangelists every day of our lives. I hope we'll look at people and say, you know, that person really needs some encouragement in the gospel, and we just say, nope, I'm going to let go and let God. That's bad theology. And yet, we exert ourselves towards this holiness. Now, there are, the New Testament alone is filled with exhortations for believers to exert themselves unto holiness. Let's look at a couple of these. Hebrews 12, 4. Hebrews 12, 4. And notice that there are words words that are being used here that imply and tell that this is on a personal level. Hebrews, of course, chapter 12 is dealing with the author and finisher of our faith. And he says in verse 4, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. I'm telling you, every time I read that, I get convicted. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. In other words, you have not taken it serious enough to where you've actually been willing to do anything it takes to get sin out. Now, Paul, if he was the author of Hebrews, again, we don't have to be dogmatic about it, but if he was, this would follow along with the very same concepts in which he was talking about in Romans. 
1 Timothy 6, as Paul was writing to young Timothy, one of the great examples of Christian life is found in the relationship that Paul had with Timothy. I realize that it's, uh, it's, this is inspired words, but there's a pattern here, folks, that the Apostle Paul, the, the elder statesman in the faith, if you will, instructing Timothy, and one of the things he tells him is about this exhorting him to holiness. 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 and 12. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So we see that even Paul encouraged Timothy. He exhorted him to be exerting himself. 1 Peter 2.11, the apostle Peter also says this in 1 Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Now, if this didn't require personal participation, why did Timothy, why did Paul and Peter not just say, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. Let go and let God. Why didn't Peter talk to the strangers and say, you know, the strangers, instead of abstaining, just let go, let God, he'll abstain for you. Because it's not scriptural. Now again, there are situations, of course, we understand that God ultimately, his sovereignty is providence. But this is not one of those areas where he's saying sanctification is just all of God and you don't do anything. And then 2 Corinthians 7, 1, which is probably the, the classic of these because it uses the word, actually uses the word holiness. Interesting that in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul deals with a couple different subjects. He deals with being joyful in our tribulation and also godly sorrow. But he begins the chapter, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We talked a little bit about this verse last week. Paul is stirring them up to have godly ambition. He's stirring them up to be holy is part of the most glorious of promises that God has given. We are to understand that actually to have these promises in our possession is we're to live in the enjoyment of them. We are to live as if these promises that God gives us and reminds us of the indwelling of the Spirit, the the reminder that we have of the communion that we have with Christ, the promise that we're part of the divine covenant, all of these things are what drive us to wanting to live a holy life. So there is this, we are to exert towards these things. Romans 6, 11 through 14 tells us we're to exercise faith. Galatians 5, 16 tells us we're to rely on the Holy Spirit. But Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, and 2 Corinthians 3, 18 actually teach us that we are to strive and exert Ourself, in order that we will see the holiness in our lives. Second point of this progress is that it is possible and it is likely that believers will at some point in their life fall into sin. 
Now, what I mean by sin is not just our everyday sin. I'm talking about deep sin. We were talking about this on Wednesday night, or maybe it was Sunday, and there's conversations. By the way, there are some conversations going on in this church after services that are just blowing my mind. But the reality is we were were talking about how, how this, the church has missed, we've missed out greatly when someone falls into sin, we treat them like lepers. Now, that's not condoning their sin. But do you know, biblically, we have a responsibility to actually get involved in the life of someone who's fallen into sin and try to reconcile them back into the body? We get this holier-than-thou attitude that says, I can't believe, did did you hear what so-and-so did? And by the way, you are one step away from the same thing that so-and-so did. Don't get so high and holy and mighty that you look at yourself and say, I would never do that. That's always the famous last words. I would never do that. There is nothing, as far as sin goes, that you are not capable of doing, even as a believer. Nothing. Nothing. And we think about the people in Scripture. Look at, look at David. The, the man God called a man after his own heart. And look at the sin in David's life. Look at the sin in Abraham's life. Look at the sin in Noah's life. Look at the sin in Peter's life. We see it in Peter. We see it in, in, in Paul, even in times. And we see it in these men. But Galatians 6, 6 tells us that we are to help those who fall into sin. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Meekness is the exact opposite of pride. Considering thyself. Now here's an example of where you actually should think about yourself. But don't think higher than you ought to. Consider what? Consider your own situation. Lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are commanded to help those who have fallen into sin. And then thirdly and finally, here's here's where this leaves us. Despite the reality that we have to exert ourselves to holiness, and it's possible for believers and likely that they will fall into sin, true believers will grow in grace and they will progress in holiness. Okay, there's no mistake about it. The Bible clearly determines and declares that if you are truly in Christ Jesus, if you have life in Christ Jesus, you will grow in grace, and you will progress in holiness. You will not remain stagnant. You won't remain the same. Now again, we get ourselves in trouble because we become the judge, jury, and executioner, and determine where somebody is by saying they're not far enough along. They're not growing enough. Uh, They're not progressing enough. My big concern is every time we say that, oftentimes we better be careful that we're truly growing and progressing the way we should. Sin is going to prevail. It's going to be there. It's going to be a part of our lives. But we are to continually strive against it. Romans 6.22, Paul says this, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. 
Back in verse 11 of that same chapter, he says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. He goes on and says, Neither yield ye your members. Verse 14 of Romans 6, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Grace progresses. We can confidently strive against sin. It is never wrong to deny sin. Now, I know you get a whole lot of ethical questions from people about, is it proper to lie for this reason if you're getting scriptures into a country? There's this, there's this big ethical moral dilemma that's out there. But I'm going to tell you that it's never wrong to strive against sin. But that's only a striving that comes with dependence upon the Spirit. You can get up every day and tell yourself, I'm not going to do this sin today. You can't keep you from doing it. You can strive against it, but you're depending upon the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, remember, if, if you could do this without God's help, God would reverse it and say, I'm going to let go of you, and I'm going to let you do all your own sanctification. You know how far we'd progress and grow? Zero. If God just, even in your saved condition, if God just let go and let you do, you're responsible for your own sanctification. You know how much you'd grow? None. You know how much you'd progress? None. But as you deny and as you strive, the Spirit is giving us the strength and dependence upon, that's the reason we want to even strive against sin is because of the presence of the Spirit. No Spirit, there is no striving against sin. No Spirit, there is no conversion. A person that says, I'm saved, but I don't have the Spirit, cannot truly be in Christ because the Spirit is the evidence that they are indeed a child of God. So the day is coming, folks. We can look forward to this. The day is coming when we will be fully sanctified. It's not going to be in this life. It's going to be in the life to come. It's going to be in that heavenly city. Uh, one, of the, one of the great books of all time, second only to the Bible and being read worldwide over history is the Pilgrim's Progress. And if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to read it, and you need to read it over and over and over again. John Bunyan th talks often about the things and the life to come. The reason he could write Pilgrim's Progress sitting in a prison cell, and if you ever want to be truly fascinated, read the backstory about it, how he wrote that, when he wrote it, and the circumstances of his writing. He was in prison because he refused to stop preaching Christ. The judge tried everything he could. He said, Mr. Bunyan, don't you want to go home to your wife and kids? He said, well, yes, sir. Yes, your honor, of course I do. Then stop preaching Christ. He said, sir, I can't do that. He said, would you really put your wife in such a terrible situation? Would you really put your children in that situation? All you have to do is say you'll never preach Christ again. He said, I can't do that. So they threw him in prison for 12 years. He sits there with nothing more than just enough rations to get him through a day. 
And he gets a little, he has a small fire that they keep just to have a little bit of warmth in there. And he takes the coals after they burned out and he begins to write on the material that was there. There was paper-like material. He pens Pilgrim's Progress, writing with coals from that same fire. And now that is the second most read book of all time. And it's not the fact of its popularity. It's what his goal was. The Christian's journey. That all through this life, the obstacles that he would meet, obstinance, one of the great characters in Pilgrim's Progress is obstinate. <laughs> and we can all relate to obstinate. And you're saying, what are you talking about? You've got to read the book. But it's a fascinating read because it's all about the sanctifying process. It's all about his journey through this life. And yet, he could have very easily said, you know what, in order to get myself free, I'll just say I won't preach Christ anymore so I can go back home to my family. Twelve years he spent in prison, and he pens Pilgrim's Progress while he's in prison. It's a great, great story and a great book. So the next chapter we'll deal with will be Saving Faith on chapter 14. So we'll begin that uh, not next Sunday, but the Sunday to follow. All right? So let's take a couple.